Well, so this week I was at my secular workplace debating on what I was going to speak on this week, and I got a text, and somebody had asked if I could actually spend time speaking about alcohol. Uh, I have not spoken on alcohol. I went back and looked. Uh, I've mentioned alcohol a number of times throughout the years. I have not actually dedicated a sermon to alcohol since 2015. Uh, and so what we're going to do is spend a little bit of time talking about alcohol. Uh, and this is an interesting topic. You guys know in my secular workplace I talk about spiritual things all the time. Alcohol is one of those things that comes up quite a bit. And it is interesting when you begin to talk about alcohol, you'll find those that they begin to use verses to support the drinking of alcohol. And then you will find people who will use verses to condemn the drinking of alcohol. Uh, and for anyone who believes that the uh, scriptures are inspired, which of course I do, we realize that truth would not contradict truth. So there has to be some absolute regarding alcohol uh, if one were to understand what the will of God is. Now with that being said, I mentioned two groups already. There are those that use the Bible to support drinking alcohol, those that use the Bible to condemn drinking alcohol. You have to also realize there are people in the world who really could care less what the Bible says. They just they like to drink alcohol for uh, simply that purpose in and of itself. So we're not going to address so much that group. We're going to go back and actually look at what the Bible says. Now, let me point something out here before we get started. We're going to look at an example. But, you know, it's not new for people to take scriptures and to misuse. Misuse those scriptures, e either to say that you can do this or that you cannot do that. So let's learn real quick as we begin to have conversations with people uh, there are those that will try to misuse Scripture to either condone and or condemn something. Go on over to Matthew chapter 4. We'll look at verses 5 through 7. We've got an example here of Satan who is really reinterpreting the truth in order to try to deceive Jesus and to get him to sin. And I'm not going to look at the whole account because we've addressed this a number of times here. Jesus will actually come back and correct him with Scripture. But notice Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Here we've got Satan quoting Scripture, and notice Jesus' response. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, notice he's going to go back to Scripture, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. What do we have going on here? Satan has gone over and he is misusing Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12 to try to tempt Jesus to sin. And why? Well, because Satan has an agenda. And again, listen to the verse he actually quoted from. This is where Satan quotes from, Psalms 91, 11, and 12. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. The verse is true. Okay, What Satan just quoted, that, that is an actual correct verse. Here's the problem, though. It is not the sum of God's Word. And so you have Satan basically saying this, you're the Messiah. If you're the Messiah, put God to the test, and He is going to protect you. And what does Jesus say? He goes back to Deuteronomy 6.16 to correct the misuse of the Scripture. Notice Deuteronomy 6.16 that Jesus quoted from, Ye shall not tempt the Lord your God as ye tempted Him in Massah. So, 
What am I starting off with? There are those that will misuse Scripture to either condone or to condemn something. So what we have to do is, is to really be diligent and go back and begin to study and try to find out, is that correct? Is it not correct? Now, let me give you a couple of, I'm going to give you some passages today that people will misuse. I'm going to start over in Ecclesiastes 9.7. This is actually one of their, uh, those that are supporting drinking, this is one of their favorite go-to verses that they will misuse. Let's look at the words of Solomon, the inspired words of Solomon, Ecclesiastes 9.7. Go thy way, eat thy bread with joy, and drink thy wine with a merry heart, for God now accepteth thy works. All right, a lot of people have gone over to Ecclesiastes 9.7. They use this verse for a couple of reasons. One, either to uh, show that it contradicts, supposedly, or, or proves uh, drinking as pertaining to what we see in the New Testament. So they're either going to show that this supports that or they're going to show that it's a contradiction. Okay, That's the normal route they go with Ecclesiastes 9.7. They'll either say drinking is approved in the New Testament and this Old Testament passage supports it, or if you disagree with it being taught in the New Testament that drinking is okay, they will say you've, you've got a contradiction here. So a lot of them will come here. Now, as I say that, let me say this. This is one of the go-to verses to say, hey, it's good to go out and drink. With that being said, there are a number of verses they do not want to go to. Okay, Let me give you just a couple of those, because this is one of the verses they would then avoid. Oh, and let me point something else out before I move on from Ecclesiastes 9-7. When he says, eat thy bread with joy and drink thy wine with a merry heart, I'm going to address the word wine here in a minute, but does anybody read in this passage where he says that where Solomon says it's okay to get intoxicated? Is that in the passage? It's not in there, is it? Well, we're going to define here a little bit what that word wine means, but let's look at one of the verses they avoid. Proverbs 21. So for the person who says Ecclesiastes 9-7 supports drinking, then you've got to come back and look at Proverbs 21. Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging. And whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. All right, so back in the Old Testament, and they were using an Old Testament verse here, Ecclesiastes 9-7, many people do, that says it supports drinking. You now have a passage that says you shouldn't be drinking. And if you're doing that, if you're drinking uh, uh, wine and or uh, strong drink, and I'm going to tell you what the difference is here in just a few minutes, you're not very wise. Well, let me ask you a question. Uh, I didn't go back and look the statistics up, but the last time I did, do you guys realize that a majority of crimes uh, are committed when people are either intoxicated and or on drugs? I'm not sure how many of you uh, maybe grew up not being a Christian, like me. I wasn't a Christian. Uh, maybe, I don't know how many of you guys grew up around alcohol, but uh, being raised Roman Catholic, uh, everything included alcohol. Birthday parties, baptisms, I don't care what it was. Uh, I saw a lot of family members and people drunk, and I will tell you that I agree with Proverbs 21. They didn't, they didn't appear to be very wise as I was looking at the things they were doing. Look at a, uh, let's go on over to Proverbs 23, 29 through 35. The Proverbs writer here shows us how illogical it is for somebody to be drinking uh, because of the effects. Notice starting in verse 29, who hath woe, who hath sorrow, who hath contentions, who hath babbling? Who hath wounds without cause? Who hath redness of eyes? They that tarry long at the wine. They that go to seek mixed wine. I'm going to tell you what all this, uh, what these definitions are here in a few minutes. Verse 31. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, and when it giveth his color in the cup, when it moveth itself all right. 
At the last it biteth like a serpent, and stingeth like an adder. Thine eyes shall behold strange women, and thine heart shall utter perverse things. Let me pause for a minute. Remember I told you a lot of the people I was around that were intoxicated, they didn't act very wise. Uh, they were doing some of these things that we mentioned here. Verse 34, Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, or as he that lieth upon the top of a mast. Let me pause again. I don't know if you guys have been on a boat, but you know how it starts rocking and you feel all dizzy? That's what he's talking about here. And then he says, They have stricken me, shalt thou, shalt they, shalt thou say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. When shall I awake? I will seek it yet again. Yeah, that's often true for those that are, are addicted to alcohol. Uh, they do a, a number of things that are, are illogical. They're not wise. Uh, it feels like they literally got beat up and they didn't feel it. And then they want to start all over and do it all again. Guys, it's not very logical. Now, this is one of my favorites. We're going to go on over to John chapter 2. I remember, I've actually heard it recently, but I remember years ago... I was having a discussion with, uh, with somebody at, at work. This is before I went to school to become a minister. I wasn't a, I wasn't a Christian yet, but we were talking about the Bible. And we got on the subject of alcohol, and he said, Jesus drank all the time. I mean, come on. Jesus actually took a bunch of water and made wine. So that tells me that Jesus was supportive of drinking alcohol. Let's go on over to John chapter 2. Most of you are probably familiar with this account. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Let me pause and correct this. I always get people that ask. When Jesus there says, Woman, that's not like today. Today when we say, it's not like me telling my wife, Woman? Okay. This is actually a term of endearment, so it's a little bit different in the language. I do want to point that out. I don't want someone accusing Jesus of being disrespectful to his mother. Verse 5, His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone, after the manner of purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim, and he saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. The beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and manifested forth His glory, and His disciples believed Him." Now, I don't deny for a second that what we have taking place here in John chapter 2 is a miracle. I do deny outrightly that Jesus is creating massive sums of alcohol which would allow others to become intoxicated. And you may say, well, how can you reach that conclusion, Sean? Well, I'm going to use my Bible. I would hope that every one of us here would agree that Jesus was not a sinner. We know that from the Scriptures, Hebrews 4.15. Yet if Jesus were to provide massive amounts of alcohol, causing other people to become intoxicated, Jesus would have been in sin. Listen to Habakkuk 2.15. Woe unto... This is for the Jew, and Jesus was a Jew. 
Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink, and puttest thy bottle to him, and makest him drunk also, that thou mayest look on their nakedness. All right, Jesus was a Jew. We have multiple verses, but this one in particular, uh, which, is the, which is condemning a Jew getting his fellow neighbor drunk. Okay, now clearly, Jesus is not producing massive amounts of... Let me ask you another question. When the, when the governor says they normally give the best and then give the inferior, if these people at this feast were all intoxicated, how would they even know whether what was provided at the beginning was better than that which was provided later? If they were that intoxicated from drinking all of this wine, they wouldn't have even known it was inferior to the first. But the very fact that they had their senses about them tells me that, one again, they're not intoxicated. Secondly, Jesus would not have, and He did not, contradict what the Holy Spirit directed Peter to write by inspiration. Listen to 1 Peter 4.3. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. So Peter comes back, and I, we could spend a little bit of time on this passage, but he condemns the following things. One, the state of being intoxicated. Two, the conduct associated with being intoxicated. Now, some may say immediately, now wait a minute. He's condemning drunkenness, but he's not really condemning the process of drinking. So maybe it's okay to drink, just not become drunk. That's, that's an argument we get quite often. We're going to address that one. But I'm going to slide down just a couple of verses, and let's look at 1 Peter 4, 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. So here's the question. I mean, what does the Bible teach? Can I drink alcohol? Uh, can I drink a little bit in moderation, but just don't become intoxicated? Or am I to refrain from drinking? Well, the only way to get an understanding of that is to go to the Scriptures. The problem is, is you have to realize when you begin to look at the word wine in the Bible, uh, the word wine in the Bible is not always wine as we think of wine today. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you the definition of wine today. We're going to look at the Old Testament usage of the words, plural, wine. And then we will look at the New Testament uh, usage of the words translated as wine. What's today's definition? It's actually pretty accurate. A beverage made of the fermented juice of any various kinds of grapes. Uh, these people are not winemakers. My dad makes wine. Uh, <laughs> my dad makes wine, so I know a lot about making alcohol. Uh, you can make uh, wine out of grapes, and you can make it out of a number of other fruits. But here, their definition is grapes, and primarily that's what we are going to uh, refer to in the Bible, or uh, from the Bible. So it's a beverage made of the fermented juice of any of the various kinds of grapes usually containing from 10 to 15% alcohol by volume. That's pretty accurate. That is today's definition. Uh, you start getting up to around about 22%, you start getting into what we would call liqueur. So it's, a little, it's still uh, kind of like wine, but it, the alcohol volume is much higher. Okay? Uh, not that you guys are interested, but the equivalent for uh, beer today is between 5 and 7% roughly. Okay? So about half by volume of what your wine would be. The Old Testament uses different words actually to describe the varying degrees of alcohol. Okay, So let's go back and get a little bit of understanding of the Hebrew usage because all of this is necessary. to, You know, I can go back and look up the word wine every time in the Old Testament, and people do, and they pull those verses out and they go, look right there, that guy's drinking wine. So, it's, you know, it's okay. Well, again, the word doesn't always mean what you think it means. 
You've got the word terash. It's used 38 times in our Old Testament. What does this word mean? Well, every time this word is used, and I'm going to give you an example, it is talking about the natural grape in its original and natural form and its contents. Okay? Also, we use this word not only regarding the natural grape. Sometimes you do find it being used for the word corn. Let me give you one example. I'm going to go over to Deuteronomy 7, 12 through 13. It says, Wherefore it shall come to pass... If ye hearken to these judgments, and keep and do them, that the Lord thy God shall keep unto thee the covenant and the mercy which he sware unto thy fathers, and he will love thee and bless thee and multiply thee, he will also bless the fruit of thy womb and the fruit of thy land, thy corn, thy wine. And I'm going to point out here in just a second, this, is, this word clearly is just fresh grapes, um, which would produce grape juice, okay? Thine oil the increase of thy kind and the flocks of the sheep in the land which he sware unto thy fathers to give thee. If you look the word up in the Hebrew, this word here always means grapes in the natural, unaltered form. And actually, as he's listing stuff here, that's all the stuff he lists. The fruit of thy womb, that's natural, unaltered form. Fruit of thy land, that's the crops, the corn, the wine. That's actually the word there. We would render that grapes. And thine oil, that would actually be the uh, for example, the olive oil, just pure olive, uh, olive oil. Uh, increase of the kind, thy flocks, the sheep, all that is unaltered, okay? And that's how it's being used there, and that's what that word means. Now you have another Hebrew word that we use, uh, it's translated as wine. 141 times you will find the Hebrew word yeyin. Now this is a very general term. And the meaning is always determined by the context. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you the three forms that this word could mean, and I'm going to give you an example of each of them in context. Okay. Sometimes you see this word yayin, which is actually uh, translated as wine, and when it's being used, it is only referring to grapes basically in their unaltered form, basically, or fresh juice. Okay. Here's an example. Isaiah 16.10. Now remember, this is rendered wine. This is not wine. Isaiah 16.10 And gladness is, taking away, is taken away, and joy out of the plentiful field. And in the vineyards, that's, that's uh, the unpicked grapes, there shall be no singing, neither shall there be shouting. The treaders shall tread out no wine in their presses. I have made their vintage shouting to cease. That right here where it says no wine, the words translated as wine, I don't know if you guys know much about the treading, but what they're doing is, is they're actually putting the grapes down into the container. They're standing on it. They're treading it. Or uh, the, common, uh, the common other way to do it is you put it basically in a press, and you press it out, and the grape juice comes out. Here in this example, this is not wine. This is fresh grape juice. They're, I know that because it's still in the presses. Okay? It has not had anything added to it. It needs to have sugar, and it needs to have yeast added to it in order for it to ferment. This is grapes. It's translated as wine, but these are grapes in the press. And so even though it's translated as wine, this is not wine. Okay? This is actually the use of this word here is simply talking about fresh juice. So that's one of the ways we find this Hebrew word translated. Sometimes we find this Hebrew word, yeyin, translated as wine, but it's actually talking about a mixed beverage. Now you may say, what about a mixed beverage? I've addressed this before. Uh, you basically had a mixture of water and grape paste, okay? Basically, it's a grape, we're going to call it a syrup, but it's actually more than a, it's not a syrup, it's more of a paste. 
Uh, listen to Proverbs 9, 2 through 5. Here is an example of this Hebrew word being used to describe this mixed drink of water and grape puree paste. Okay, Proverbs 9, 2 through 5. She hath killed her beast, she hath mingled her wine. If you look that word up there, you'll get the understanding. Here it is talking about mixed, uh, mixed beverage. It's water mixed with the grape paste. She hath also furnished her table. She hath set forth her maidens. She crieth upon the highest places of the city. Whoso is simple, let him turn in hither. As for him that wanted, wanteth understanding, she said to him, Come eat of my bread and drink of the wine which I have mingled, which I have mixed. Okay, so what we're talking about here was very common. This was the most common way to flavor water. This was their soft drink of the day. They didn't have Mountain Dew or... Shasta or any of the seven of any have any of that stuff, right? So what they did was they would take their water and they would take a grape puree paste, which was sealed in a airtight bladder. They would pull the cap off airtight, guys, so no air can get in. It cannot ferment. They would take the cap off. They would squeeze the actual puree paste into the water, uh, and they would flavor it roughly 20 parts to one. 20 parts water to one part of the grape. Hey, how many of you guys have ever made Kool-Aid, right? Uh, it's basically, it's first century Kool-Aid. They're using the grape flavoring out of the bladder, 20 to 1 ratio, to make something that they could drink during the day. The result was not a beverage that could get anybody intoxicated. And you may say, well, is that something only the Jews did? No, it's not. The Romans did it too, as a matter of fact. I'm going to quote from Studies in Ancient Technology, Volume 3, page 130. The Romans filled it in jars... The Jews did not use jars. They used actual bladders. Uh, and my guess is that these, because they're putting it underwater, these Romans are actually using bladders too. But he uses the word jars. This historian does. The Romans filled it in jars. They shut and sealed them tightly. That's so it cannot ferment. And immersed them in cold river or seawater. It has to be sealed so water doesn't get in or it would dilute all the paste. They put it in cold river or seawater, thus stopping fermentation. There is no such thing as wine without fermentation. And the grape paste that they are, uh, that the Romans used, and they would put in bladders or jars, the same as the Jew, and they would seal it and put it under cold water to keep it cool. That was to stop the fermentation process, right? Uh, it would be very similar as to when we talk about the Jews having Passover, and people say, well, it was, it was uh, they were drinking wine. The Jews couldn't have any leaven in their house during Passover, None. They would actually clean the entire house of leaven. That included the wine that they were drinking would not have leaven in it, right? You need the leaven to make it actually ferment, okay? So the Jews did this process of making a mixture out of a puree paste uh, the same as the Jews did. So the Jews and Romans both did it, okay? The normal everyday drink was about 20 to 1 ratio, 20 bits of water to one bit of paste. Now, you also had some that would drink something different. They didn't want to drink just a flavored beverage. They wanted something a little stronger. And they would take three parts water and mix it with two parts wine. And that is actually uh, considered strong. Sometimes you see the phrase, though, strong wine in our Old Testament or strong drink. That normally, by uh, what we find in our historical documents, uh, and in even the Jewish writings was a 50% water to a 50% wine. So it's a one-to-one -one ratio. Now we have to remember, it was a sin for the Jew to go out and to give his neighbor strong drink. Right? So it's not like today where you're going to have a party and everybody 
you bring your own bottle. We all we all drink off of this, and it's you wouldn't be having parties and giving people wine to get them intoxicated, right? Again, we as we've already noticed, it's a sin to make your neighbor drunk. So they're not the Jew, the faithful Jew is not going to be providing alcohol to make his neighbor intoxicated. So you've got the word yayin used to describe fresh juice sometimes. Sometimes it's used to describe a mixed drink. We also do find that it is used to mention intoxicating wine. I'm not going to go back and read the whole passage, but if you go back to Genesis 9.20, uh, it says Noah began to be a husband, husbandman and he planted a vineyard. And then in verse 21 it says he drank and he got drunk. I remember same gentleman I had the first conversation, the one who said Noah drank all the time. The same guy once actually, this is years ago, he said, Noah, Noah drank. Noah got drunk, as a matter of fact. Well, let me point something out, and I wish I could spend some time on this. Maybe you guys will be intrigued and look it up. Uh, but let me point something out about Noah. The scriptures teach that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And prior to the flood, now this, this you better do some research because I'm just going off the top of my head and telling you what I believe after I've studied this. Prior to the flood, Noah is described as a preacher of righteousness, and you do not find any record ever of Noah being intoxicated. But I do want to point something out. After the flood, for anybody who's never studied this, atmospheric pressure and all the things that changed would have caused fermentation to occur much quicker than prior to the flood. Okay? I can't say I'm 100% accurate on this, but I don't believe for a second that Noah intentionally drank with the intent of becoming drunk. I don't believe he realized the difference in what had taken place with the atmospheric pressure, how quick fermentation took place. My, my personal thought is, is he, he was drinking, uh, not realizing that it had become fermented, and that's most likely what happened. I can't say that 100% because all, I, all I've done is my research. Uh, but I don't believe for a second that Noah intentionally got drunk. But neither here nor there, there is mention in the Old Testament uh, from this word yayin, which is used to describe sometimes intoxicating wine. So that word could be fresh juice, it could be a mixed mixture of water and a grape paste, or it could mean strong intoxicating drink. Again, you have to go by context. Now let's go to the New Testament, because this is really where it's going to start to get important. You guys know the word here, oinos, or, or no, oinos. It's used 32 times within our New Testament. It is the exact same use as that Hebrew word yayin. Uh, what I mean is, is it's the general word for anything made from the cluster of the grape, and the context always determines the meaning of the word. Okay, So you see that word oinus quite often, 32 times, where it says wine, but you've got to look at the context to see if that word means uh, just grape juice or, or juice from the grape cluster, or does it mean fermented? You have to go back and do your research. Context means everything. You also find this word translated as wine, glucose. You find it once. This is any beverage short of total fermentation, but has had some sugar. For anybody who hasn't done any, my guess is, I'm just guessing, uh, not many people here are actively brewing anything at their house. Uh, if you are, let's have a little conversation afterwards. But for those that are not familiar with brewing alcohol, the brewing process with sugar just added does uh, create an extremely intoxicating drink. And this is actually the rendering we have in Acts 2.13. You'll recall this account. Others mocking said, these men are full of new wine. All right, they basically are saying these guys are drunk. No, that wasn't what was taking place there on the day of Pentecost, but that's what that word means, okay? That word new wine, glucose, it's, 
any beverage short of full fermentation but contained sugar and it would have still been intoxicating. You also have the word sykira, translated as wine. We only find it once. That is straight, unmixed wine. What are we talking about? Probably 15% alcohol, okay? Notice Luke, 12, or Luke 1.15 here. You'll find this word. And notice how it's rendered because they, they don't actually render this wine here. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. All right, the word here, really, we're describing this uh, wine. You start getting into the strong drink, it's going to be much, much higher alcohol content um, than that daily, that daily mixture wouldn't have had any alcohol in it. It's just a puree paste. It's not fermented. Then you had those that would drink a little bit of a, of a two-third ratio. You had those that would mix it 50-50. And then you had those that would drink it straight. So you've got a lot of variations going on here. Then you have this word used four times, oxus. This is an interesting one. I had somebody try to pull this one on me once. What is oxus? You find it, you find it translated four times. It's either uh, translated as sour wine or vinegar. Um, this was given to Jesus on the cross. Let me say one other thing. So being, I don't, I don't brew alcohol at my house, but um, grew up with alcohol always being brewed at the house. When wine uh, goes bad on you, usually during the fermentation process, it be, actually becomes vinegar. Uh, you can call it a sour wine, and there are a few uses for it, but for the most part, you just pour it out on the ground. In the first century, they actually used it. Uh, a couple times, uh, we actually find where they would actually add a medicinal purpose. Uh, they would actually add something to it uh, for medicinal usage. Uh, and somebody actually came back and said, well, you know, you keep saying Jesus, Jesus didn't support the drinking of wine, but I got you on this one, because if you go on over to Matthew 27, 48, Jesus drank this vinegar, and if you go back and do your, do your study here, this is fermented alcohol. And I said, well, you mean it's gone bad? They said, doesn't matter, it's fermented. Huh, thought he had me, didn't he? Let's look at Matthew 27, 48, because I'm going to point something out that I doubt anyone here has ever heard. Matthew 27, 48, and straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar. This would have been uh, fermented alcohol that is actually, really, it's gone bad, but you could do it intentionally. They did make vinegar for usage. Does anybody in here uh, can? You use, my mom canned. You use vinegar for canning also. So there were, there were regular uses for vinegar. It says, and he took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. Now guys, I want to point something out. If you guys go back to Matthew 27, 33, and 34, you will see initially Jesus rejected this. He wouldn't take it. And then they say, now wait a minute. He had, well, he might have rejected initially. Why did he drink it here? It's a good question. I hope every one of you guys will go look this up. Why did he drink it? If you go look up the nine of the ten times that you find this vinegar being mentioned, it is nine out of ten times it is being used for an innocent substitute being offered as a sacrifice for the Jew. And Christ was the substitute that would be offered. Makes perfect sense to me when I went back and did the research. Now let's go ahead and we're going to consider just a few passages here. You guys are going to get a shorter sermon today. Let's consider just, we already went back and looked at John chapter 2 verses 1 through 11. Uh, I could spend a lot of time actually on that passage, but uh, I, I don't deny the miracle took place. I do deny that Jesus created, if you guys don't know how large those containers were, uh, you're talking massive 
massive amounts of alcohol. Like they would have, they would have just all been uh, totally intoxicated, which again would have been sinful for our Lord and Savior to do, and we know that He was without sin. There is no basis in the text of John chapter 2 to presume that anything He was, was creating was alcoholic or intoxicating, especially when, we, again, we know making other people drunk would have been a sin. Additionally, when you go back and consider everything that Jesus taught uh, and you consider uh, everything that would have required soberness and sound judgment of our Lord and Savior, I think we can assume that Jesus was not walking around drunk and intoxicated, right? We don't have any, we don't, we have, we have people who made the false claim that Jesus was a, a drunkard. I'd like to actually go back and look at that, uh, but I don't have time for it this morning. But we, there's no, there's nothing in the context here that would show that this was alcoholic in nature. Let's go on over to Titus chapter 1. Uh, I'm going to give you the pretty, pretty much the most common passages people use. Uh, this is either to reject or to condone alcohol usage. Titus 1 verses 5 through 9. Paul writes, by inspiration, For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city, as I had appointed thee. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly. For a bishop must be blameless, as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Now the majority of people uh, that I know would read this and say, well, uh, elders are not allowed to drink alcohol. He says not given to much wine, or not not given to wine, okay, cannot drink alcohol. Now let's go on down to Titus 2.3, and you find a li- this is worded just slightly differently, but we're going to look at two more passages actually to, to tie in with this one. Titus 2.3, The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. So, elders not supposed to be drinking, uh, the elderly women... Well, not much wine. You know, that's what a lot of people think. They can have a little bit. Uh, they shouldn't be getting intoxicated. Let's go to 1 Timothy 3.8. Let's look at the deacons. Likewise, must the deacon be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, but greedy of filthy lucre. I've heard this time and time again. Elders cannot drink, but the aged women can have a little bit. Deacons can have a little bit. Uh, cl- clearly, guys, this is not accurate. <laughs> Uh, let me point something out here. At any time in our New Testament, when the Bible starts declaring groups and saying alcohol for this group, every time it is none. It's none. So for anybody who's taking these three passages and says, well, the one says not given to wine, the other one says not given to much wine. Uh, so they can have a little, just not a lot. Let me ask you the first question. What's a lot? For a person that weighs 100 pounds, is that going to be different than a person who weighs 240 pounds? For a person who weighs 100 pounds but drinks every day, as composed to a person that's 240 pounds but never drinks, intoxication rates are totally different. Uh, What's a lot? What's, What's much wine? Guys, the Greek here for the word much is palus. 
And according to the Strong's, I'd urge you to all go back and look this up, in the singular sense, it means in any respect. Let me go back. For the elder, not given to wine. None. Not given to much wine. That word much, in any respect. Not given in any respect to wine. What's that line up with? Same thing as the elder. None. What about the deacon? Not given to much, the word palus, in any respect. Not given in any respect to wine. Elders can't drink alcohol. The aged women can't drink alcohol. The deacons can't drink alcohol. Guys, if you go back, we could start listing all of the groups in the Old Testament over in Psalms. This isn't in your notes. Psalms 31, verses 4 through 7. Kings and princes are not to drink alcohol. Anytime you find a group where it is saying, do not be drink, we're talking about intoxicating beverage. Anytime you find a group mentioned in the Bible where it lists a group, like not a, not, you know, uh, the aged women, the deacons, the elders, kings, princes, anytime it starts mentioning them and talks about intoxicating alcohol, the answer every time is none. None. This isn't my personal opinion. Uh, and this isn't based on what I, what I want to do or, or don't want to do. This is, this is a, this is a in-depth just recording what the Bible teaches. I, I don't have a dog in this fight. All right? it, uh, it, if the Bible was open either way, I would say the Bible's fine, you can drink. And if, if the Bible says you shouldn't be doing it, then I'm going to tell you you shouldn't be doing it. Right? I, don't have, I don't have a care one way or the other. I just want to do what the Bible says. So the question was, what does the Bible teach about alcohol? Well, so far we've looked at the usage of the word, We've seen that the word oftentimes is translated, but context determines it. And now we begin to start to look at the groups of people being mentioned, and every time it is none. Don't be drinking intoxicating alcohol. Now, then this one always gets thrown in my face. What about Timothy? Timothy was having stomach problems, and he was told to drink some, drink some of this wine, right? Let's go over to 1 Timothy 5.23. Drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine other infirmities. Paul says, you know, with the, with the trouble that you have, you might take a little bit of wine and that might be able to help your stomach uh, or your infirmities. Guys, at this time, there wasn't a whole lot of medicine to be used for different uh, ailments. And occasionally they would use alcohol to differing, differing degrees of of uh, mixture rates, like even today, if there are certain medicines, they've tried to remove it from a lot. You guys remember uh, NyQuil back in the day? Come on, you couldn't sleep, what'd you do? I didn't have a cold, I'd take a little NyQuil, put me to sleep, right? It had, it had I don't remember what it was, 10 or 15% alcohol, whatever else they had mixed in there with it, I could take some of that and go to sleep, right? At this time, they didn't have a lot of options for what you could do to help different ailments, and so, uh, Paul tells him, for your infirmities, take a little bit of this for your ailments. Now, let me point something out here. Medical usage of, of something containing alcohol is not even the issue here. Uh, and certainly today, if you are sick, you're not going to go into the doctor and his... <laughs> you're not going to go into the doctor and he's going to say, you know what you really need to do is I want you to take two shots of Jack Daniels every day for whatever your problem is, right? They don't... We have medicines today. They didn't have that stuff back then. They... They may have used a few different... Medicinal usage has never really been the issue, guys. And, and for the most part, if you go to the doctor, they may give you a medicine that has a small certain percent of maybe even some alcohol in it, not much. Uh, but they usually have equivalent versions that have none. 
So we're not talking about medicinal usage. Plus, I want to point something out here. Paul, by inspiration, is having to tell Timothy, go ahead and drink a little wine. If Paul is having to tell Timothy this, what would you infer about Timothy's behavior? It was not normal or customary for Timothy to be drinking any type whatsoever of alcohol. Okay? Now, again, let's really boil it down like this. We started to look at the scriptures, and if, again, I haven't spoken on this since 2015, and I gave a lot of information in that one that is not in, in this one. But this, the scriptures are inspired, and you're not going to find truth contradicting truth. So here's the question. Here's the question for everyone here today or for anybody watching. Where is the New Testament passage that gives us permission? I ask that because the old law was nailed to the cross. We're not Jews. We don't live under the law of Moses. We live under the New Testament, right? Where is the New Testament passage that authorizes what, prover or what, what the Scriptures condemn? The Old Testament passage, uh, there's no Old Testament passage that authorizes what Proverbs 23 and 29 through 35 forbids, right? You have multiple scriptures forbidding the drinking of alcohol. You have no one passage saying, yep, you, it's fine, you can go out and get drunk. You have some words rendered wine, but as you go back and look at the context, that can vary. You find there is not one Old Testament passage giving permission to go out and get intoxicated or to drink intoxicating behavior, uh, beverage. Let me point something else out. Some people say, well, you can drink until you're intoxicated. What's intoxicated to you guys? According to the state of Michigan, I believe it's .08, right? So is it okay to drink to .07? Did you realize the very second you start drinking, you start to become inebriated and you begin to lose self-control? You guys ever known somebody after they've only had one if you guys probably are not, not around people like that, but uh, when people start drinking, virtually immediately they begin to lose their inhibition. They begin to uh, lose their self-control, their thought processes begin to go by the wayside, and they begin to make unwise decisions. And that starts occurring ever before you hit the .08 or the legal limit here in Michigan, right? So here's the question. Find me the Old Testament passage that, that gives permission for drinking alcoholic beverage. There is not one. There is also no New Testament passage that authorizes what 1 Peter 4.3 forbids. And there are other passages that clearly say do not become intoxicated, but that intoxication process starts immediately. Now, there is no doubt that the Scriptures condemn the drinking of intoxicating beverages of our day for recreational usage. If I go to the doctor, and I'm sure there are other alternatives, uh, and he were to give me some cough medicine and it has... 0.2% whatever in there, and I'm taking a half of a teaspoonful for a week, uh, and the goal is not to become intoxicated, or get intoxicated, but that's the only ailment or the only medicine they have for that ailment. I'm not trying to become intoxicated, and it's being used for medicinal purpose, but even then you might be concerned. Uh, but that's not what we're talking about. For the people who are trying to promote the drinking of alcohol, let me give you a one of, these is, one of these things I hear, I actually, I've read the articles. Did you guys, my, my dad actually told me this on the phone uh, last year when we were talking. He said, well, you know, I've made it a custom. I no longer drink. I used to, the rule at the house used to be in the day, no drinking till after noon. So starting with lunch, you were okay to have a beer, right? Now that he's 83, he said, I don't drink until four. 
So he, he's moved up and he said, but, and here's, here's the point I'm going to, but I only drink for the health benefits. Guys, let me, let me explain something to you here. Uh, the grape juice is actually where the antioxidants are found. Once you start doing the fermenting process and you start to chemically change the wine, it no longer has the health benefits to the same degree as the, just the grape juice. So if your argument is, I, I, I'm only drinking for the health benefits, which is actually what my father told me. You know, I don't drink beer anymore. I've, I've switched to wine, and it's solely for, solely for health purposes. Uh, I'd like to have a little study with him about health, but uh, the antioxidants are actually found in the grape itself. Some people, uh, they drink alcohol. I'm just going to be honest with you. They like it. They just like it. They don't need biblical reasons to do it or to not do it. They just, they just want to do it. And then you have some, and probably even members within the church, who maybe even aren't primarily those who enjoy drinking or want to drink, but they will drink under certain social customs. And here's, here's an example of reason why. Let's say the company goes out and has um, a get-together, uh, and let's say that you're standing there. And every, what's everyone else doing at the party? They're all drinking. And what are you doing? You're just standing there. So guess what's probably going to happen to you? I'm just going to let you guys know. Probably going to pick on you a little bit. They're probably going to make fun of you. Well, you a, you a teetotaler, right? You don't drink, right? Uh, I told you guys not long ago I showed up for a company meeting. We got there. I didn't know where it was at, and lo and behold, everybody was drinking. I had unsweet tea, right? And nobody, nobody harassed me or... or or hammered me or complained and made fun of me there. They may have when I left, but they didn't do it to my face. So some people really don't drink, but they drink due to social pressure. Here's the question. Whether you're doing it for health benefits or whether you're doing it just because you like it or doing it because it's really from social pressure, let me ask you the question. How many of you guys actually want to be found intoxicated or in the process of becoming fully intoxicated when Jesus returns? I don't. Let me end with one passage. 1 Peter 4, 6-7. For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. Pretty hard to pray when you're intoxicated. So my, my suggestion, and I think it's in alignment with the Scriptures, is that you refrain from drinking alcohol, and that you continue to be sober and watch unto prayer. And guys, you cannot be, pl- you cannot be praying sound scriptural prayers if you're intoxicated. Now, we could spend a lot more time talking about the use of alcohol in the Bible, but again, I will just say this. There is not one, and I have looked, there is not one Old Testament passage giving permission for one to go out and to drink intoxicating beverage uh, even to the point of drunkenness. And even when it does occur, when you find someone becoming intoxicated in the Old Testament, it's always condemned. Even with Noah. The Scriptures don't lie. Noah became intoxicated. Go back and actually read that account. There was, there was some messed up stuff that, that took place in a lot of these accounts when you start seeing people become intoxicated. Number two, the New Testament. There is no New Testament passage anywhere that gives permission for one to go out and to drink intoxicating beverage until they become uh, drunk. So that was what I was asked to speak on. Hopefully that's given you a little bit of a better idea. Uh, if I did not cover that well enough for you, somebody let me know, and we will, we will do an even in, even in more depth uh, study on that.
But again, I do always thank you guys for uh, asking me to, to speak on specific topics. As I draw this to a close, here's my concern that every one of us would be a faithful Christian. That starts by becoming a Christian. It's not complicated. I would encourage you, don't listen to what anybody says, even me, about how to become a Christian. I want you to look, look it up. Okay, but here is, here's what I'm going to tell you. I'm going to give you the passages, and I'm going to mention to you how people became Christians in the first century. This is how simple it was. You had people going around, and they were teaching the gospel. Right? They were teaching who Jesus was, that He was the Messiah. They were teaching why He came. They were teaching... Uh, about the church, and the reason was they wanted people to have faith and believe. Hebrews 11.6 and John 8.24. Jesus said, if you don't believe, you're going die to die in your sins. That's why people were going around preaching the gospel. They were also being taught about sin and the consequence of sin. Romans 3.23, all men have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the consequence is death. And so because of that, as these gospel preachers were going around, I would urge you to look through the book of Acts, they were telling people about condemnation due to sin, and they were being told to repent. Jesus teaches that in Luke 13, 3 through 5. You find Paul teaching it at Mars Hill in Acts 17, 30. So they were being taught who Jesus was, why He came. They were being taught about the church. They were being taught about sin. They were being told they need to repent of their sins. They were confessing Christ with their mouth, Romans 10, 9 and 10. And then they were immersed in water, for the remission of sins. Like Jesus says in Mark 16, 15, and 16. Why? Because baptism doth also now save us, 1 Peter 3, 21, because it's a burial in water where the old man is killed off and the new man rises up, Romans 6, 3 and 4, to walk in a newness of life. That's how easy it is to become a Christian. I know people today will say, just, just say the sinner's prayer and ask Jesus into your heart. I can't find it. It's not in there. But I can assure you what I just told you, and I gave you all the verses, that is how people became Christians. And if they could become a Christian in the first century like that, you can become a Christian today in the exact same way. Notice again, there were no denominational groups in the first century. People were just like we are, just Christians. Just Christians. You don't need a Baptist council. You don't need a Catholic uh, catechism. You don't need any of that stuff. You just need to be a Christian. And the way you become a Christian is by obeying the gospel. And then when you become a Christian, it's as simple as... I say as simple, as simple as living faithful. If you're here and you're a Christian, look back throughout your week and ask yourself, how did I do this week? Did I struggle in some areas? I do want to point out, if you sinned and you're a Christian, it is as easy as repenting of that sin and being faithful, and the blood of Jesus Christ will continue to cleanse you, 1 John 1, 7 through 9. If there's a way that we can help you in any way, you can come forward as we're led in a song of invitation.